Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios. Oh, who am I kidding? <laughs> com nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen, who's uh, really cool. <coughs> I am the legendary Burl Bear. That is Mark Boyer, our fact-checker and co-host. Hello. Drew Clam Uncensored. Got great, great news, great announcements today. Uh, you all know Danny Trejo. You know Danny. Uh, he's been on our show. He's been on Matt's show several times. And does all those movies where he plays... Where people. Where he kills people. <laughs> but he's going to get a big award. December 7th at the Skirball Center. Uh, our friend Leonard Lee Bouchel will be presenting him. Actually, I think uh, whoever the presenter is, maybe Ed Bigley Jr., will be presenting him with the Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards for his brilliant uh, memoir of his life in crime, recovery, and Hollywood. And um, even Pitbull Rescue. Super nice guy. Uh, a lot of fun in the movies. Dan's a good man. Dan's a good man. And uh, we'll be talking more about Dan, I think, uh, next week or two. Uh, here on True Crime Uncensored as we get close to December 7th when he will be honored at the Skirball Center. And if you're into that, uh, you can't wear a tux, you can't wear an evening gown, and you can't wear Uggs. They do have a dress code <laughs> for the Recovery uh, Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards presented by Writers and Treatment, on which I'm the advisory board, so I always get this uh, info. Plus, it's Front page news with The Hollywood Reporter today, so that I'd share that with you. Uh, the other good true crime news, you've heard me blabbing about stealing Manhattan for the past couple of years. Books coming out in uh, 2023. And uh, made a deal today with world-famous uh, director, producer, who has been on this show and Matt's show several years ago. And that's Matthew Berkowitz, who we termed son of cinema. And he's had just a brilliant, dazzling career uh, with documentaries and motion pictures that you see on uh, Netflix and HBO Plus, etc. Hey, and I'm also proud to say that in the list of the 100 best-selling true crime books of 2022 mm-hmm. is one that I wrote that came out in 2016. Kind of took a while to catch on. Yeah, no, no, it just consistently keeps selling. Ah. That's a Betrayal in Blue, the one I did with ah. uh, with uh, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. and uh, the, uh, Ken Urell. Second most corrupt cop the second in most NYPD corrupt cop in the contemporary NYPD. When you get the book, if you don't have it already, we do have a Kind of a, a history of the corruption in the NYPD going back to when it was first formed. In the 1800s. Yeah, and oh boy, was it corrupt from the, from the get-go. <laughs> and we've had uh, chiefs of police uh, in writing tell the police, if you can't make enough extra money to be rich being a cop, on the side due to corruption, you don't belong in this in this force. Oh, here's Patrick Craig. He was my first co-host, and he went on to get great fame as an author. Hey, boy, how are you? Right, I was just warning the audience that you were my first co-host on the radio. 
on the Wahai Radio Show in Wahai, Washington. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we were young then. Uh, your name came up in conversation here on True Crime Uncensored just about a, uh, a week ago when we had the brilliant uh, Ron Francel uh, on the show and uh, mentioned you. I don't know why, but your, your name came up, and I, I asked him if he knew what the novice woman's fantasy was, and he said no. And I said, well, according to Patrick Craig, it's two Mennonite. <laughs> and so then I had to tell him who Patrick Craig was and that prompted me to say I saw that you are have what of the top 100 books in a certain category you own them all what is what is, what's going on how did you get so famous well uh, good books that's all I can say I mean, what what really is this honor that you were bragging about on uh, Facebook today? About the best? I have six books in the top 100 in a in an Amish category on Amazon today. Well, that's good news. Yeah, that means they're going to be sending you large checks. Well, that's uh, that is yet to materialize, but I'm waiting with bated breath. <laughs> yes. Uh, now we we were just asking ourselves a question that only you well you not only you but you can answer. <clears throat> Do the Amish read your books, and if so, what do they think of them? No, very few Amish read Amish fiction. Really? Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, it's mostly a thing that the Englishers, what the Amish call the Englishers, which is everybody that's not German. <laughs> uh, that, that doesn't sound historically or demographically correct. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the Amish, call, the Amish speak German. Yeah. They're mostly from of Swiss and German extraction. Mm -hmm. and, and so you got Hirschbergers, you got Yoders, you got... Yodlers. And so they speak, yeah. So they speak German, and they consider anybody who's not Amish to be English. Well, that's so, highly inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. So we're all Englishers. We are. Yeah, and so uh, about thirty years ago, uh, a lady wrote a book called The Shunning. I think it was Beverly Lewis. Yeah. And it became immensely popular. Uh, but but among Englishers, not among the Amish. I would imagine not. Yeah, and and the Amish actually kind of laugh at a lot of the books that you see on the shelves at Walmart because they're happily ever after romances, where the worst thing that happens is when the wheel falls off the bishop's son's buggy <laughs> as he's on his way to court the, the Amish gal who looks like Grace Kelly. Yes, that's really common. <laughs> <laughs> and that never happens. No, the buggy wheels are much more sturdy than that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so they think that's weird stuff. So who buys this? If the Amish don't buy books about themselves that are fictional, do they buy anything? <laughs> uh, you know, mostly Amish fiction books are CBA, Christ Christian Book Association. 
But there's a, there's a lot that Harlequin puts out, and you know Harlequin is just general market romance. Right. I wrote one. So if once. you go into yeah, if you go into Walmart, you'll see a ton of Har- Harlequin books on the shelves that are Amish book Amish fiction. And they're hot, huh? Do they have them in yeah. the adult scintillating category? Uh, no, <laughs> not that I know of. I mean, uh, Amish Mafia was uh, was in there, but... <laughs> <laughs> Amish Mafia? Boy, uh, yeah. I hate to be riding their getaway car. <laughs> yeah, and I actually own the, uh, the domain name Amish Zombies. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I think might, that gets uh, a, lot, a lot of traffic. Slow-moving traffic. Yeah. Good traffic nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are there any Amish zombie books or movies? Well, there might be if I if I ever get around to it. Yeah, but that, it's they're kind of boring because they're not violent. Yeah. And they make their own <laughs> furniture. Well, but they but they eat their horses. Oh. <laughs> Oh, they kill horses, don't they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is degenerating quickly, just the way I like it. <laughs> yeah, well, you are a degenerate. What's the yes, problem? Yes, that's right. Uh, I'm a baby boomer. That's the degenerate generation. Yeah. So how many of these do you crank out a year? Well, I have, uh, let's see... I have six Amish books. Uh, I just finished one that's coming out in December. Only this one is an Amish mystery book. Well, we it's like a murder that. mystery. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I've I've made one of my characters into the Amish Miss Marple. Oh wow! Kind so of she's a, she's older now. And she gets called back to her hometown to solve a forty-year-old cold case. Ah. Well, once you, a, a, if you choose to leave, I forgot the name. They call it when you spent a year in the secular world. It's called Rumspringa. Yeah, and then you, you choose to go back or never return. Yeah, and, and ninety-eight percent of Amish kids go back. Well, sure, that's what they know. Yeah. Just like people who are sex trafficked, they get rescued, they go yeah. back. <laughs> That's true. I know. It's, I know. It's weird, isn't it? Well, you go back to, you go to what, what you know, what you're comfortable with. Yeah. And uh, people find that hard to understand, but if that's where all your synapses that you've developed are wired for, that's what you're comfortable with. I, I heard, uh, even in the... Some of the um, concentration camps in World War II, when they opened the doors, a lot of the guys wouldn't come out. Really? Yeah, because of the very same thing. I was so comfortable here. Well, but, you know, yeah. you're absolutely correct. Stephen Avery, the uh, the main character in the very controversial, they made me a, a murderer uh, story where. He was falsely accused of murder and was sent to prison, got out and sued and was about to be awarded something like $35 million. Uh, suddenly they arrested him again for murder so they wouldn't have to pay him the $35 million and, <laughs> and, and sent him to prison. But in the interim, he 
the, having that type of freedom physically was so foreign to him, he went and built himself an igloo that was the same size as his cell. Yeah. Because uh, he was that's what he was used to. Very strange. Yeah. Very, very strange. So, Stockholm. Was they, they call that the Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, that's when you identify no, with your cat. Yeah, that's when you, that's when you, yeah. It's You're not being in isolation. Oh, right, okay. But It's like that, Pat, Patty Hearst joining the SLA, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Or the NFL, depending on who offered the most money. <laughs> 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 Pardon my poor sense of humor. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't know which one is more criminal. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, yeah. The other thing, now I've lost my, my mind went off the rails with that one. Uh, do you do research on this or do you just make it up as you go along as far as the Amish? No, I, I have to research it. I'm a, you know me, I'm a history buff. Yep. And uh, and my my dad was actually a, a history TA at the University of Oregon for several years. Oh, and that was his major. He was a major in uh, Far Eastern history. But I love studying history, so I do the research. And actually, most of my historical fiction books are have real characters in in real historical situations, and then I just kind of jam my fictional characters in there to interact right, with them. Right, right. You will notice, uh, if you haven't already, that when you put real stuff in your works of fiction, the stuff people complain about is the real stuff. Yeah. I, I had I, that. Uh, I, I was just... I wasn't surprised, but I was kind of. Uh, by Book Capture the Saint, the twist ending or whatever was absolutely 100% true based on a real right. real case and someone wrote a review and said the way he wraps this up with this happening is so ridiculous so far-fetched you know well isn't there an old saying that uh, truth reality, is reality can, is more Bizarre. interesting than anything can be dreamed up yeah well in one of my books, I had a, a scene where the couple died in the hospital. And when they died, they were holding hands, and one died before the other. And the nurse didn't know that one of them had died because she was watching the alive one's heartbeat in the dead one's monitor. And so I wrote that. I, that that was an actual thing that happened, and I and I read the article about it, and so I put it in the book. And that was the one I got a really bad review, like a two star review, because that would never happen. So did you kind of say, oh, "Here's the news article"? <laughs> yeah, I did. I sent her. A, I sent her a link. <laughs> did she apologize? No. Of course not. Of course not. Why should they? That's like uh, I, I William Sapphire. It was a William <laughs> Sapphire who started the whole uh, crooked Hillary thing and said about yeah. Whitewater and said, "I will apologize if this isn't true." And it was proved to uh -huh. not be true, and he never apologized. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that's a prerogative. That's right, uh, poetic license, right? Yeah, you're very poetic. So, <laughs> The Amish aren't buying the Amish books, so there must be a strange subculture out there that somehow has some sort of 
Amish fixation? Well, you know, I I didn't know this, but when I was going to writers' conferences years ago, I found out that, and I was going to Christian writers' conferences, and I found out that Amish fiction is the largest selling Christian genre. Really? Uh, except for the Bible, of course. <laughs> well, of course, yes. And and, and the bonus material for, after the gospel, the bonus material. Yeah. yeah, and has been for thirty-five years. No wonder you write it. Yeah, <laughs> that was a wise business I, decision. I got tricked into it. Really? Yeah. Well, I knew nothing about the Amish, and I met a guy who was the senior editor of one of the big Christian publishing companies, and he asked me to send him a one-sheet for a story idea for, he was going to put together an anthology of short stories, so he said, I like Amish stories and I like quilting stories. So I sent him an idea for uh, an Amish quilting story, and, and about four months later, I had a contract with them for three books. <laughs> That's great. And I knew I knew nothing about the Amish, and I knew nothing about quilting. <laughs> but yeah, I think you learned in a hurry. Yeah, thank goodness for Google, right? Yeah. Because I could say, I could say, Dear Rabbi Google, <laughs> the Amish. <laughs> well, I had, it's very similar. My nephew, uh, Lee Goldberg, and I had sold... Uh, an article to Video Review Magazine, or Video Magazine, one of the two, about uh, the saint uh, on video cassettes, <laughs> right? Right. For the movies you could get. And without my knowing it, he sent, he sent it to McFarland Publishing as a proposal for a book by me, without telling me. <laughs> yeah. And in July, about the first Friday after the 4th of July, I get a contract in the mail from McFarland Publishing for a book, The Entire History of the Saints in Print, Radio, Television, and Film, to be delivered in a year and a half or something. What? Where did this come from? I've got a book contract. So I I signed it. I wrote the book and won the Edgar Award for it. So my advice to to new writers is... Always win a big award on your first book. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of well, like Steve Martin. It's, it's, like a, it's like a friend of mine who had a really good band. When I lived in Marin County, California, and he had a really great band there. And they did five or six albums, but they never out. And I asked him, Bill, why didn't you guys ever make it? And he said, we were the band that when opportunity knocked, we answered the phone. <laughs> so that's another good word to, to blossoming writers. If you think opportunity is knocking, don't answer the phone. That's right. Weren't you in Pacific or Pathetic or whatever it was, Gas and Electric? Uh, that I was in? Yeah. I was in West Coast Natural Gas. I knew it was one of the two. <laughs> right. I, was, I knew it was some utility. <laughs> I'm, yeah, right. I'm, I'm a subsidiary of natural gas. Yeah, you have a lot, too. <laughs> <laughs> How many albums did you guys do? Uh, we did one. I used to and, own it. Uh, yeah, I, uh, actually, and we didn't do it for, uh, I mean, we didn't do the complete album until about five, 
uh, eight years ago. Really? Uh, yeah, a company in Switzerland contacted me. And we, we rounded up all the dubs and all the tapes and all the stuff and put together a record. Wow. Yeah. So what about the one that I got years ago? Which one was that? That was oh, the what? San Francisco Sound? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was uh, the notorious uh, Matthew Cates. Oh yes, he was notorious. Yes, he owned the names. He owned the name, and and he actually took uh, several of the West Coast natural gas cuts and turned them into Indian pudding and pipe. Really? Yeah. That was, there was a whole, whole kerfuffle about all that stuff, and it never even very worked its way out of there. And it, it's still kind of roaming around the uh, rock and roll stratosphere like a horrible, uh, you know, vision. Of <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember he owned uh, Moby Grape. He owned that name too, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he did. And uh, several and others. And it's a beautiful day. And Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, that's right. That's why, that why they changed it to Jefferson Starship. Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, a lot of um, rock and roll performers, musicians, um, transitions themselves into successful jazz careers. And uh, the guitar lead guitarist for Starship did that, Craig Chikiso. Huh. Made himself yeah. uh, a name and a lot of money. Yeah, you're being as you have perfect pitches, I remember, and quite a musician. Uh, was uh, it pretty that, close? Yeah. Uh, in air quotes, <laughs> was it? Was it the fact that so much rock and roll got on your nerves because the guitars were out of tune? <laughs> oh, you know when I went to San Francisco. I, I, it drove me nuts because none of those guys, including the Grateful Dead, played in tune. And that, and I have, well, for a guy, I don't have perfect pitch, but I have relative pitch. So I know when things are in tune with each other. Ah. And, and if I, and if this guitar player is not in tune with that guitar player, I know it viscerally. So it would give you the blues when they played the blues. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> and so, you know, but, and then I, I, I met a group there in San Francisco, and they were um, called the Sons of Champlin. You probably remember them. Very well. We've had them on the show. At least Bill. Yeah, and... They were remember remember the bands we liked when we were in high school the Whalers the Dynamics right. you know kind of white boy R and B from well these guys played that stuff wow and they were in tune they had a Hammond B three organ so they had to tune the guitars to that yeah. is that Bill and Champ I loved it what's up and I loved it is that Bill Champlin you're referring to yes. Yeah, we yeah. had him on the show a number of times, and uh, one evening he brought his or his B three over, and we're, he was playing, you know, throughout the show. Yeah. Well, he and I, uh, 
our old songwriting buddies. We we wrote several tunes together that were on Sun's albums. Were uh, was he the too much good stuff guy? Yeah. Yep. But I go back way further than that. Right. If you remember an album called Circle Filled with Love. I wrote the title track with Bill to that that album. Nice. You get money in the mail? No. No mailbox money. Never, <laughs> never seen a dime. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, one of those things where you just go, well, I can either be a jerk or I can just let this go. But did he get all the money? And didn't he? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's showbiz. Yeah, that's showbiz. That's tragic that that showbiz. At least with the uh, with books, I still get to have movies because I was a long time going with Judy Fay, who was the widow of Joey Fay, the comedian, mm-hmm. forty years older than she was. Mm. Who uh, great, the guy who wrote? Robber. Slowly I turned in spite. Step by step, step by step. step. Niagara <laughs> And she would get these checks in the mail for seventeen dollars and eighty cents because they ran Once Upon a Time in America on HBO or something. And he's in that movie yeah. briefly. And uh, uh, you know, all those seventeen dollars and eighty cents add up. And I still get hey. checks in the mail for uh, the book I did that came out in, what was it, 1993 uh, or something. So. I, I, I still get checks from my first Amish books. Because they, I, I sell them actually every day. We had a, a, a child a star um, on the show. Who did? And he brought... A handful of his residual checks: three cents, closer. three cents, five cents, eight cents, two cents. <laughs> yeah. It cost like more to print and mail the check. Check, yeah. <laughs> we had that. We had that well. discussion when I was working for a, a local bank. Um, and do we just send the checks regardless, or do we save some money and hang on to the money? Until it's over what it costs us to print and mail a check. What did they decide? Uh, we decided to hold off and print when there's enough money to send somebody. <laughs> unless, unless it's a close up there. They're liquidating their accounts yeah. and we have to send well, I have a deal. I have a deal with all the people that I get money from. If it's less than 10 bucks, don't send it. Just wait till it accrues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because it cost me 10 bucks to drive to the bank. <laughs> Especially with the gas prices nowadays. Exactly. What I liked is I got turned over for collection because I owed zero dollars and zero cents. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and they would a not stop bugging me for that. You so I sat down and $0. wrote them a check for zero dollars and zero cents. And uh, the, the, the physical check gets processed and clears the account. Yeah. As opposed to just somebody going in and fixing it. Shrunks. Yes. No, no, we can't fix that. That's too complex. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Oh, I have I have so many stories of of financial things going wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's my life. <laughs> no, that's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we 
replaced an out-of-date and inaccurate loan payment system at Home Savings. It, it never, it almost never worked when the unless they got the exact amount correct. And it would happen one every five times that would work. And what the tellers would do is they'd enter a bogus amount, like all like seven ones or seven nines or one two three four five six seven, and then it would come up and say this is the amount owed, and then the person would pay that exact amount and it would work. Well, we replaced the system. But nobody bothered to think about the teller and patterns and just history. And, <laughs> and, you know, within the first week, we were having to write, we were supposed to write checks for, a, you know, several million dollars of overpayments <laughs> to the customer. <laughs> I bet the customers were thrilled. Uh, and we had to quickly double clutch and close. Isn't that kind of like that... Uh Richard Pryor character in the Superman movie uh, where he discovers the, the yeah, zero, they're, they're, zero one. Yeah, they're talking. Okay, now, who has been embezzling? And here he drives up in his Ferrari. <laughs> you know, I, I've mentioned this before. Is there was a woman at First Interstate Bank who was doing that. Did it for 15 years. Wow. Never took a vacation because she was afraid they'd find out. But after 15 years, and she had... Yeah, on her computer, she had like a hidden file that showed where the money was. You have to hit the exact combination of keys on her keyboard to access it. She goes on a trip, finally, vacation with her family to Hawaii. They bring in a temp worker who sits down, plops her fingers on the keys, hits the exact combination. <laughs> She lands in Hawaii with the FBI waiting for her. (laughs) Yeah. That's divine intervention. I ask this of of all the authors we have on. How do you... Where does your inspiration come for whatever story you're going to do next? Just uh, just kind of going along, you know... uh, well, Burl knows that I've been writing since I was in grade school. Mm-hmm. And if you, in fact, we used to have you and Steve Schick guest, guest for us, if you remember, uh, when I was editing the Y Journal. Oh, yeah. That's a fine and, literary uh, publication. <laughs> yeah, a fine literary publication. But, uh, I have a, on my computer, I have a folder with about 50 ideas for books of all different kinds, you know, Westerns and, in fact, my friend Murray and I just wrote a Western that's actually doing quite well. The weird thing about Westerns that I don't understand, Kensington Publishing Group publishes Westerns, as you probably know. Right. And they changed the... uh, their payment schedule or their payment method of paying authors were basically, they suddenly decided that they were paying authors way too much money (laughs) and and put a cap on how much they'd pay, which was not good uh, in terms of advances, right? But the, the, uh, the chief executive editor there at Kensington told me, says, well, Burl, if, uh, you want to write westerns? You know, you can. You're a good writer. You can write westerns. 
They have to be 150,000 words, which is a hell of a lot of words. That's 50,000 more than a true crime for an advance of $2,000. And I said, I could make more money flipping burgers. Yeah. 150,000 words, that's a big book. Yeah. That's, I don't think they engraved hundred and fifty thousand. No, we probably did fifty-five, fifty-three, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. See, Louis Lemoore, was, read a Louis Lemoore book. That's probably forty thousand words. Yeah, well, some of them duplicated. Look at all the times they used yeah. the word "the." Yeah. <laughs> and is another one he used a lot. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, that's why uh, Frank Gerardo and I, when we sat down to do our. Uh, our co-author on some true crime books, we decided, you know, uh, a contemporary mystery novel usually comes in about 55,000 words, maybe 60 max. Why should a true crime book be 100,000? You know, it has to be. It shouldn't. Right. Let's just tell the story. Right? And the story will probably come out about 55,000 words if told in conversational style. And everyone will be happy. We were right. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, the books keep selling. As I was mentioning to Mark before you joined us, we had a list of the top 100 best-selling true crime books of 2022. And on the list was Betrayal in Blue, which is one that Frank and I did with Ken Jarrell about the, uh, the dirty cops in the NYPD. Right. That book came out at the end of 2016. And it still is in the top 100 true crime books in 2022. It's easy to read. It's like 55,000 words. And it got great reviews. We really liked the conversational style. There was no padding. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. just told the story. And uh, that was... Well, that, isn't, that the, isn't that the key? The Telling key the is good writing. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> if you, you could have 150,000 words, and if it's bad writing, you might as well throw it in the dumper. Yeah, but some people really like bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's different approaches. Like, in the true crime world, you can take two extremes. You've got Jack Olson on one end of the spectrum and Ed Rule on the other. Both best-selling uh-huh. true crime writers. Their styles couldn't be more divergent. And uh, uh, it just gave Jack Hives. <laughs> hey, he was a really nice guy, Jack Hives. No Jack fears. Hives, yeah, great guy. Uh, no, uh, and it, uh, but that's because Jack came from a, a background, of, a journalism background. So his whole right. thing was journalistic integrity. He didn't care mm-hmm. about describing the colors of the leaves and the blah, blah, blah. You know. Uh, right. So it was just different approaches to the same thing. Both were very successful. and both had strong fan bases. But uh, the approach was entirely different. But they both worked. So if it works, you know. Well, you know, uh, I read a, a lot of Zane Gray books when I was a kid. And most people think Zane Gray is a, an action-adventure or a Western writer. But really, Zane Gray is one of the best romance writers that ever set pen to paper. Really? If you read his book, you, you see that there's always a very, very 
strong romantic interest going through the whole story, which usually doesn't get resolved until the last chapter of the book. So it kind of keeps you in a state of unfulfilled arousal until the final chapter. Yeah, yeah. but but that's a style, and people look at it today and they say, well, that's really old-fashioned, but, you know, so is Charles Dickens, really old-fashioned. Well, then you know, you- can you imagine... Can you imagine Charles Dickens sitting down with an editor today with uh, uh, Tale of Two Cities and the, oh, no, and the was, editor? No, because he was being paid by the word. Yeah, and the editor saying, well, we're not going to say it was the worst of times because we don't want people to get bummed out. That's right. And we're not going to say it's the best of times because <laughs> we don't want to, we don't want people to be, you know, Overly optimistic. Other people. <laughs> that is very funny. Oh, dear. That's a great <laughs> bit. But uh, he says the same things like 15 times over and over again in that book yeah. because he's being paid by the word. The more right. words, the more money he's going to make. Well, I was like Franklin W. Dixon. Never existed. Like, I know he the did, guys, but a lot of people did. I was a big fan who, of the Hardy Boys until... Until they turn, you know. No, the guy also the name of the book escapes me. But Frank falls off a cliff. Joe sees Frank fall off the cliff, so he runs, jumps off the cliff, lands, and catches Frank. And I uh, said, "Yeah." And I went, "You whoa!" Well, <laughs> that, that's yeah. when I stopped reading the Hardy Boys. Yes, I had. Uh, you know, if one of them had reached terminal velocity, yeah. you didn't want to catch up. But if the first but, one jumped off, you know, laid horizontally, <laughs> spread out, he wouldn't have reached terminal velocity. So you could have caught up. Well, it was terminal velocity for my reading of the Hardy Boy books at that point. Yeah, that's you know, right. I got tired. Well, they, they hired guys and paid them 100 bucks to write those books. And worth every penny. And worth every penny. And, you know, they updated them. The verses I yeah. have, Chet is still driving a fliver, whatever a yeah. fliver was. <laughs> is that like a sports car? I think McGill. Yeah. I don't mean a brand, but that's what they called them, a fliver. A fliver, right. Yeah, a fliver. Shed is, and maybe it's a topless, maybe it's a fold-back top or something. Yeah, whatever it is, I didn't know what a fliver was. Now if you buy it, they'll say it's a sports car or something. But I, uh-huh. I have the old-fashioned ones that belong to my brother. Uh-huh. I inherited them. So I have a bunch of them, too. I've got like 60 of them somewhere. Yeah. I still have mine. I don't know whether they're packed away. Uh, uh, would they be first editions? Could have. I might be worth something. You know what I found in my garage in perfect shape? Uh, number one of Monster World. And oh, magazine. And so I, book or? I went online to look on eBay. People are selling that first edition of Monster World for anywhere from 150 to $175. Wow. Well, also mine for 125. <laughs> that'll keep that'll keep you in, in Sucrest for a week. Yeah, that'll keep me in Sucrest for a week. Uh, yeah. That... <laughs> I mean, I even have a complete collection of Screen Thrills Illustrated. 
whatever yeah, happens to uh, be good would be to find some of those old bad magazines. Yeah. Well, the the real money is in the first uh, the first of a a superhero sequence or the first of that uh, manufacturer's issues, like the first Batman, right. the first Superman. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a for a a pristine copy of the first Batman, the first Superman. Well, yeah, but the thing is, you buy them when you're a kid, and you draw on them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you color, and even though they're already yeah. in color, you add your own color to them, my and you find out had, you destroyed your financial future. My brother had yeah, right, well, of them, and my mother threw them out. Yeah. My my uncle was a DJ back in the fifties, and. He used to get all these uh, demo copies. copies from the yeah, and he would send them from us. And so I had all the stuff. I had silhouettes. I had cherry pie. I had all the all those hits from the fifties. And my brother and I used to scale them out the upstairs window, trying to hit the telephone pole across right. the street. No. <laughs> yep, <laughs> I had because my brother had them before me. All the Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. comic books, which oh my mother, without asking, gave away to some distant cousins who came to visit. Uh, my mother lived to be a ripe old age. I did not murder her, despite the thought crossing <laughs> my mind. I came, I came very late in the family. I was um, uh, over 10 years late. Yeah. And I'm like uh, five, four, five, and I have all my sisters' forty-fives outside, and I'm playing frisbee and catch with them by myself. And I left them outside to melt. Yes, they're not the worth much California if they're melted. Sun. <laughs> well, my sister still nags me about that. Yeah, had all Elvis Presley forty-fives later. Yeah, they make nifty ashtrays, except the ashes fall out the hole. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> a real problem. <laughs> I can remember when, uh, kind of like the Beatles run Ed Sullivan, and even back when when Elvis was on, he was on Steve Allen, I think, first the show, not the person. And, uh, right. Uh, he was on something else too, but uh, I used to have you know all those first first edition forty five RPMs on RCA. But uh, I think I finally sold most of that stuff. I had this incredible collection. Yeah. I had a great collection that was stolen. And the sad thing about the collection that was stolen was that uh, being a rock and roll DJ in Seattle, along with Magic Matt Allen and Pat O'Day and all these other people, right. uh, they were autographed. The albums were all autographed by the artists. And oh, boy. A friend of ours who had received an award from the Seattle Police Department for being the most exemplary recovered heroin addict. <laughs> decided he tried not being recovered and stole all my albums and uh, hawked them uh, to go get uh, heroin. Yeah. And uh, I knew those guys. You knew those guys. When I, when I lived in Seattle, yeah. I knew them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're still there. The ones that aren't dead. Boy. Yeah, one one of I'm still, I'm still I'm still in touch with John Kilior. Really? From the from the Daily Flash, yeah. Yeah. Jack of Diamonds. Yep. They were really good. 
Well, believe it or not, the Daily Flash was the opening act for the birds at the Whiskey Go Go. And I was uh-huh. and I was uh, in L.A. I was 65, and uh, I was in line to see the birds for the final set. They finally let me in, and uh, there was the Daily Flash playing after the birds again, right? Yeah. So I walk up to the stage, and he looks down at me and goes, Burl, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so I came to see the birds. I can see you any time. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's funny. They were a good band. They were. And the Floating Bridge. You ever see the Floating Bridge? Not the, oh, not the bridge, but the band. Right. Who, who, who did they used to be before they were the Floating Bridge? Well, that's a good question. They were the Sinking Barge. <laughs> no, they weren't. No, no, it wasn't the Dynamics or something like that, right? No, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. I helped his girlfriend get an abortion once. Uh, what was his name? Uh, I'll tell you, here's a, a little-known true story that we have to tell too many people as I tell it on the radio. Here's uh, the guitar player from Heart, a left heart, and uh, formed his own band. And I happened to stop uh, to use a payphone at a tavern in Oregon, and it said, debuting tonight, the so-and-so band, which was the guitar player from Heart. And so I stuck around. He was so impressed that I came all the way to this little town in Oregon to see his debut performance. And it meant so much to him. I've never had the heart to tell him I was there by accident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of guys. I'm still in touch with Jeff Hawks, too. Do you, hey, do you yeah. ever... He cut my hair. Oh, yeah, you know... There's a lot of guys from Walla Walla that actually up doing a lot of good stuff in the music scene. You know that Arthur Lee of Love wanted, because Jeff could do an impersonation of him, wanted Jeff to tour as Arthur Lee uh-huh. in Love, because he could <laughs> sing like him and look like him. Yeah. Thanks for filling in and joining us today. It's yeah, it's great cool. having you. And uh, we'll have yeah, you back sure. talk about your new book. Yeah, the one that comes out in December. The mystery. December 15th, yeah. All right. Okay, thanks a lot, Pat. Walking along, honey, hand in hand, I'm a friend. 
You get it. 